There are dark times in this world. Times where it seems that evil has overwhelmed every aspect of life. Times where the streets run red with blood. And it seems that all hope is lost until one man steps up, looks them in the eyes, and says, Hello and welcome to Rollin' Bones. I'm Ryan Howard. How is everybody doing today? You will notice that my intro has taken on more of a superhero theme this week, and that is because we are talking to the legendary Steve Kenson, who is the creator of Mutants and Masterminds, the creator of Icons, which is another superhero RPG. We talk about all that in this interview. But first, I believe I am due to give you this week's rant from behind the screen. So... This week's rant is going to start with a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Uh, There's a little bit of stuff that I want to address with this podcast in particular. Uh, First and foremost, I have resolved my previous audio issues. I did get some complaints about having myself in one ear and my guest in the other ear as far as headphones go. That was a consequence of the setting that my Skype recorder was on. I have since fixed that setting, and now everyone is going to be in both ears. It should work out better. I've also fixed the audio quality, so there's not so much of a difference between this opening piece and the uh, actual interview portion. So that should resolve some of the audio issues we've been having. Hopefully you guys enjoy the new production, and it's easier for you to listen to. I'd also like to address the new listeners that we picked up with last week's episode. Uh, Shane more than doubled my podcast numbers, which, Shane, thank you very much for doing that. Uh, We are now on the rise, and I'm hoping that we can continue this momentum. I'm hoping that you guys who came in to listen to Shane are here to listen to Steve, and we'll be here next week to listen to Jackie Zantow. And I'm overwhelmed by the, the number of countries that are represented in my audience. So I've got my my analytics here on Anchor, and uh, 81% of my audience is from the U.S. That doesn't surprise me. 10% of my audience is Canadian. I'm assuming that's just the Knights and Nerds people, and maybe one or two of their friends. Uh, 1% is from France, uh, so bonjour. 1% is from the Czech Republic. Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, 1%'s in the United Kingdom. That's cool. Uh, 1% is in Uruguay. Uh, Buenos dias. I'm recording Recording this at 9.50 a.m., so it is still the morning. And then less than 1% is in Denmark, and uh, less than 1% is in Australia. How about that? That's pretty cool. A lot of countries represented there, so no matter what you are listening to this on, um, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Tell your friends, especially now that we've uh, fixed our audio issues here. Now, when it comes to D&D-related stuff, the thing that I was going to rant about today is the difference between, and saying this even it is a little bit difficult, but, but the difference between a hardcore and a casual role-playing game. And not mechanically, that's a whole different can of worms. Steve and I actually address that in the show, but I'm talking about actual sessions. There's distance between these two things, but I found that when you're playing RPGs, there's the camp of people who are super invested in the story and their character, and, you know, they, they immerse themselves They do voices. They, you know, they completely embody this world that they are playing in for a few hours. And then all the way at the other end, there are people who don't really like to roleplay, don't really feel comfortable with it, and kind of treat D&D like a board game. 
And I don't want to take anything away from either. Uh, both are perfectly valid. Any way you want to play the game, that's how you should play. But there can be problems when you have a player who is one way, or a DM who's one way, in a campaign that's the other way. Perfect example of this is my current group. I've been playing D&D for right around three, three and a half years. I've got a decent amount of experience as a player and a DM, and what brought me to the table was role-playing. In my first session, I was using an accent and reacting to the things around me, like in my fa I was I was really deep into the role-playing aspect the first time I ever picked up a pair of dice, or a set of dice. They don't come in pairs. However, that is very unusual in my experience. A lot of new players who come to the table for the first time aren't comfortable with that. Some of them will become comfortable with that. Some of them will never be comfortable with that. And what I'm dealing with with my current group right now is I've got a couple players who just aren't into role-playing. And because of that, it's skewing the game away from, you know, the, the major investment that I, I like in my RPGs into a more casual, more game-like environment. And at first, that was something that I resisted heavily. I was upset. I, I was upset that that was the case. Because again, what brings me to the table is role-playing. And so I'd be, you know, I'd get into my, my character voices, and I'd be reading the module in advance and be like, all right, now this guy's gonna sound like this, and this one's gonna sound like this. And I'd get to the session, and it didn't matter. Basically ignore whatever the NPCs were saying. Or they'd make fun of my voice, or they'd make fun of the name, or something like that. And I'd get upset, because I you know, I put this work in and I got myself to this place where I could, you know, do this voice and it, it doesn't matter. They think it's funny. What it comes down to, though, is I can't change that. I can't make them not think it's funny. And neither can you if you find yourself in this situation. And this is as the DM. So as the DM, I, it, it's on me to adjust. It's on me to, if I want to keep this group together and, you know, we they want to you know, keep having fun, I want them to keep having fun, I need to ease up on that, or if I'm going to do that, not be so offended when someone makes fun of my voices. But if you find yourself in a player situation, where you are very much a more casual player, and you enter into a super hardcore, everyone has voices, everyone's very invested in their characters, everyone's calling you out on meta-knowledge, that kind of stuff. If you find yourself in that situation, uh, you might actually have to remove yourself from that game. It's, it's very hard for one player who's kind of against the grain to change the course that a game is going. That's extremely difficult, and I'd recommend that you find a, a game that's more to your liking. And same thing in reverse. If you're a super hardcore player and you end up in like a, a beer and pretzels game, as some people are known to call them, a game where, you know, people aren't really role-playing, it's just, I'm gonna roll dice, kill things, have a good time, joke about what happened during the week, that kind of stuff. If you don't like that and you find yourself in that kind of group you might have to uh, again find another group but another thing i want to talk about with this is it's completely reasonable for a group to start out casual and then evolve into something more if you have a group of new players and you know not everyone's comfortable with role playing and stuff like that it's okay to start out with a more casual game and just be like, all right, yeah, you don't really have to role play as much. I'm not going to throw 
too much role-playing stuff at you. We're just gonna, you know, you go through here, fight these monsters, blah, blah, blah. Make jokes about stuff. It's, you know, it's a casual game. But you can gradually introduce role-playing and, you know, introduce situations where people have to role-play to resolve the situation. And then, you know, if you find that your group isn't really into that, don't don't bring it in. But if you find that they're, they're starting to get it a little bit, start to understand this role-playing thing, then you can keep doing that and then you can build up to that hardcore game. But not every player is going to enjoy that. And not every player is going to come to the conclusion that they like role-playing. It's all about just with new players like I have in my group, trying different things, trying different approaches, seeing what they like, seeing what they don't like, and then building your game around it. And that's something that I've had to struggle with because my players, what they enjoy in the game is not what I enjoy in the game. They they don't really care all that much about combat, and I think part of that is my fault because I have a tendency to just kind of like say, all right, roll your dice, give me the number, I'll tell you if that hit or not. I think I need to be more descriptive with my combat. That's something I'm going to try next session. And uh, yeah, they don't they don't really care about combat. As far as role-playing goes, they're a little on the goofy side, which I've put them in a world where the entire the entire world that they're in is on the brink of a worldwide war. I, I kind of... <laughs> I like Matt Colville a lot, and I listened to his running the game videos, and he was talking about putting people in a Cold War situation, and how that would be cool for a an RPG, and so I did that. I, I put them in a medieval Cold War situation, but they don't seem to care. So I'm I'm gonna have to back off a little bit on that. They, uh, they don't seem to care that the continents are... are on the brink of war with each other. They seem to care more about freeing and naming wolves and making friends with goblins and stuff like that. So again, gonna have to change stuff up. But that, again, it comes down to me as a DM. They know what they want. And I kinda sorta know what they want. And now that I'm through being bitter about it, cause I was for a little bit, I was like, come on people. I want this this gritty, on-the-brink-of-war campaign, and you guys are going to end up in the middle of this gigantic war, and you're going to have to solve the problems, and it's, it's going to be brutal. And they're just not having it. So now I have to adjust. And now, like I said, now that I'm through being bitter about it, it's, it's time for me to buckle down and find what they like. And I've asked them for backstories and stuff like that. Hopefully we'll get some, and I'll be able to place them in the world give them kind of their own their own space in the world, make them feel like they actually belong in it, and make it their story. And at the end of the day, that's really what you want to do with D&D. You want to make it the player's story. That's why so many people complain about the DM who's writing a novel and won't let you mess with anything because he needs it to be this one way for a novel. Because the the player's story is the story in D&D. As the DM, you are populating the world, and you are running the world, but it's not your world. It's, it's a world you share with the players. And if that becomes a major conflict, if you just really can't handle what your players are doing, you, you think they're a bunch of clowns, or you think they're a bunch of murder hobos, or you, you, know, you don't like how many NPCs they're knocking off, or you don't think they're killing enough enemies, and you can't resolve those differences, then you'll need to step aside, maybe let someone else DM. But I think most of you can adjust, and I think most of you should try to. I'm definitely going to try to adjust, because at the end of the day, I want to be a good DM. I want to be better than I am now. 
And this is going to mean changing my style a little bit, adjusting to what my players want, and hopefully I can give them the same experience that my good friend Mo gave me in his game, where every week they want to come to the table and just experience what I have for them. That it becomes, if not the highlight of their week, one of the highlights of their week, like D&D was for me. And honestly, I've not thanked Mo enough for that. Um, when he comes on the show, I'm definitely going to spend some time thanking him for giving me that. But yeah, that, that will do it for today's rant from behind the screen. Hopefully you guys found something of value in it. I definitely did. Th that's why I do these rants. I mean, part of it's for you guys, but part of it is also kind of for me to vent what I'm feeling about RPGs and D&D. &D and a lot of times it'll be stuff that came up in, in my games. So it's catharsis for me, but it's, it's for you guys too. So enough of my blathering, enough of my ranting. We have a very, very awesome interview to get to with Steve Kenson, and I hope you all enjoy it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, on Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, Green Ronin's Steve Kenson. We are here with the creator of Mutants and Masterminds. He's worked for Green Ronin for quite some time, and he has a game out called Icons. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Kenson. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Oh, thank you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And uh, before we get started, I did promise my previous guest that I would deliver a message to you. Mm -hmm. So, Steve, from Shane Hensley, happy birthday. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> Shane. I appreciate it. I know that was very anticlimactic. <laughs> I know. I was all wondering. Well... Steve, we are going to get started the same way we get started every single episode of the show. So how did you get into RPGs? Oh, let's see. I originally got into RPGs um, when I found a copy of the uh, first edition gray box of Gamma World um, in a local bookstore. I was, I was a big bookworm as a kid and um i was kind of fascinated by it and i parent i talked my parents to buying it for me and um i over the over the course of that that summer uh from school i you know um basically talked my friends into into playing it with me and um it was really all about um rolling up weird mutant characters and um, you know, uh, looting ruins and things like that. And, uh, we, um, just, I mean, we like burned through the, whatever it was, like three gamma world adventures that there were at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I quickly discovered that there, that there were other RPGs. And so, uh, we ended up, um, importing our Gamma World characters into um, Greyhawk and having them rampage through Greyhawk for quite a while um, until we got bored of that. And the rest, as they say, is history. Because once I discovered D and D, then you know everything else was just a you know a matter of time. I you know worked my way through the whole TSR catalog at that time. So Gamma World was your first game, correct? Was it gotcha. was. Gotcha. Well, do you remember the name slash uh, class of your first character? 
I remember, well, he was a mutant. I, um, I remember that. And um, his name was Namal, uh, something like that. And, um, uh, and I remember that I was um, very happy about the fact that he could throw heat blasts from his hands. Uh, nice. <laughs> you know, because it was all about, like, rolling up weird mutant characters. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, how would you describe your play style as both a player and a GM? Well, as a player, I'm 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 very much uh, I'm a, I'm a team player type. I I was the guy I played clerics a lot mm. uh, in D and D. If that gives you an indication of my play style, yep. Um, I'm a I'm a good support player. I like um, you know helping out my team and you know making sure everybody's you know on the same page and all of that sort of thing. And I game master a lot. Um, I was I was a perennial game master with my group for quite some time, and uh, I think that uh, sometimes would would often run the sort of supportive character as a, a game master PC, you know, sort of NPC character that I could have in the background mm-hmm. uh, as far as that goes. So um, I, I like to think as a player, I'm very courteous towards game masters because i i've uh, had i've been a game master you know for uh, quite some time kind of going off of the questions that i typically ask i've noticed this amongst all of the designers that i've had on here do you find that a lot of people who fall into design are kind of the the perma dms oh yeah yeah i mean i think that it's i think all game masters are game designers to one degree or another mm-hmm. uh and so people who game master a lot often have an inclination either either an inclination towards game design or they develop a skill for it or both so i i think yeah i think it's pretty common uh, among designers so now going through your history as a player in the gm can you think of the most fun game you've ever played or run oh gosh most fun game i've ever played or run that's that's a lot of territory to cover um I've certainly had a lot of games that have been a lot of fun that I have run in various incarnations. Gosh, it's hard to say. It's hard to pick one that's that's the most fun. Um, I had a lot of fun um, running Torg uh, from West End Games back in the day. Um, now, recently out in a, a new incarnation, which I'm actually getting to write for, uh, which is kind of fun. Oh, nice. Um, we played a lot of that um, back in the um, very early 90s, um, and um, I had a lot of fun um, running my original Marvel superheroes uh, game as well. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of a lot of really fun games. Uh, that it's it's hard to to pick uh, a favorite. In all that time, can you think of maybe the least fun game that you've ever played or run? <laughs> um, oh gosh, well, there have been a lot of of attempts at um, running games. Um, I wanted, I always wanted to um, run a um, a World of Darkness game, but it turns out that I'm just not. Either I or my gaming group are just not suited for it because we've never been able to make a go of it um, for any of the World of Darkness games for more than like a game session. 
they always just you know the wheels always just come right off mm-hmm. uh, and it just never goes anywhere so you know we I, I think I have run pretty much all the world of darkness games once uh, with my game group and it's it's just never with the exception I take that well it's not a world of darkness game we we played a lot of exalted strangely enough um, but the, the the main you know sort of modern day world of darkness games just never quite caught on Steve if you could make an RPG system for any fictional universe that doesn't have one or you could take an old RPG that hasn't received an update in quite some time and give it a modern rule set, what would it be? Hmm. Well, I would love to tackle the Marvel universe for an RPG, but I would be very hard pressed to do it because I'm really very fond of a lot of the previous Marvel games um, so it would be hard to do one. Uh, it would it would be really a challenge to do one that was that was something that I really liked, um, that also wasn't uh, essentially reviving one of those games. Um, and um, I don't really. I'm not a big believer in updating rules setting rules systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the sense of uh, you know. Uh, I don't think that if you, I think if you play D and D with a different game system, you're playing a different game. You're not playing D and D. But I, I can certainly see doing different rule system or a rule system update for a particular game setting, mm-hmm. uh, as far as that goes. And I guess I would, if I had my my, you know, like unlimited opportunity to do it i would love to just redesign a Shadowrun game from the ground up um i honestly have to take a look at the the new edition of Shadowrun that's coming out because i have no idea what it looks like yet so Mm -hmm. um but i wrote a lot for Shadowrun, um and it's still uh, a setting that i'm really tremendously fond of but um i will admit you know, having been on the design side of a lot of stuff for Shadowrun, that it was a game that was often successful in spite of its game system rather than because of it. I was actually having a conversation about, uh, yeah, about Shadowrun today with uh, some people at work, and it inevitably came around to how GMs will try to find a way around net running. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The infamous Decker problem. Yeah, you know what are you going to do while the the, the Decker is off doing his thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, for the last of these kind of introductory questions, and Steve, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Mm-hmm. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? I have been waiting for years um, for. Uh, Green Renine to finally break down, and we've been, we've joked for for uh, quite some time um, that uh, that I was going to get a, a t shirt that said "Blue Rose Made Me Gay." <laughs> um, um, pretty much ever since we did the original edition of Blue Rose, uh, you know, now like over ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, and we've never gotten around to it. So if I could just whip up a t shirt out of nowhere, I probably would do that just to finally have it done something to wear to conventions Mm -hmm. well i did this with shane 
And so I guess I have to do this with you as well. Um, I have played Mutants and Masterminds twice. Once as a player, and it was a really fun one-shot with my regular gaming group. Mm -hmm. And then the other time, I was GMing an online game. And this is one of my least proud moments as a dungeon master, because this is this is a game that did not end with a bang, but with a whimper, as mm-hmm. people gradually dropped off, not realizing the type of game I like to run. But the idea was, I am going to run a superhero World War II game. Mm-hmm. And what my initial idea was that got me thinking about this was... June 6, 1944, the landers are coming for Normandy Beach. When the when the boats open up, though, instead of GIs running out, it's a bunch of superheroes. Mm-hmm. And instead of machine guns on the beach, it's giant robots. Sure. And we did it. It was session nice. one, and it was the best session of that entire game. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of hard to top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should have thought about that. Uh, so... But- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that sounds like a lot of fun, though. So, Steve, what was it that got you to start designing adventures? Well, it was largely um, that I was running various games for which there weren't a lot of adventures uh, in many cases, or you know, it was it was difficult. Uh, you know, it, it required I, adapting a lot of adventures in some cases. I, you know, like I said, I started out with Gamma World, um, and I think that there were maybe three published adventures, you know, for the first edition of Gamma World. Uh, And so I ran out of adventure content pretty fast, (laughs) as far as that went, and had to start, you know, making things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started reading a lot of, uh, you know, adventures for other games, and... Likewise, when I would run um, other campaigns, um, when I ran my my Marvel superheroes game, I um, was you know we were playing with original characters we made up, and all of the published Marvel adventures were you know intended that you would play the you know the X Men or the Avengers or you know whoever the sort of theme characters were for the adventure, and some of those I could adapt, and other cases I was just like I need to make up something, you know, the else. And so I would cannibalize, uh, you know, champions adventures and villains and vigilantes adventures and put pieces together and, you know, Frankenstein, you know, some, you know, hybrid uh, adventure and eventually just, you know, sort of started making stuff up. Um, but it was mostly just to have more adventures uh, as far as that went. Um, it was, it was, um, there wasn't much in the way, at least for the games I was playing, uh, in the way of you know a prepackaged, especially a prepackaged campaign that was pretty much unheard of um, when I started playing RPGs. And uh, what was it that got you interested in comic books and superheroes? Oh gosh, I was into uh, comic books even before I was uh, playing RPGs. Um, it pretty much, it was actually sheer boredom um my my family moved around a lot when i was a kid um and i spent the summer between the um 
fifth and sixth grade um, in uh, a little roadside motel outside of Las Vegas um, where we had just moved. Um, and over the course of the school break over the summer, my parent, my dad was starting a new job. My parents were looking for a house. And we were living in this little motel room. Um, and, uh, you know, there was just literally nothing to do. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, in order to keep me quiet for at least a couple of hours a day, uh, my parents would give me a, uh, a couple of dollars and send me to the, uh, there was um, a 7-Eleven, you know, uh, next door to the hotel and they mm. had a comic book rack. Um, because again, I like to read. Um, and, uh, there weren't exactly a lot of bookstores uh, around, but there were comic books. Uh, and so I would, you know, buy uh, a couple of, you know, I'd buy like, you know, a small stack of comic books and I'd read those. And then a few days later I'd go by and I'd buy a few more. Um, and, you know, by the time, um, we were, uh, by the time I started school, I was, I was just a regular, I was a regular comic book reader. I would be, you know, down at the convenience store every week to see what the new comic books were, um, then I discovered that um, comic book stores existed, that there was such a thing as back issues, and it was just all over uh, at that point because I could hunt through back issue bins and I could buy, you know, comic books from, you know, years past. Uh, and I, you know, just became a voracious comic book reader at that point. Yeah, it was pretty much everything. <laughs> and uh, who were your favorite heroes both then and then uh, today? Um, I was a big fan, especially at the time I started reading comic books of both the, um, the X-Men and the Teen Titans were both, um, really big, uh, titles at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I was, I was a huge Legion of Superheroes fan, uh, right from the get go. Um, discovered that book pretty early on, um, and a lot of the classics, you know, um, Fantastic Four and Justice League uh, and uh, the like, um, I bought a lot of, uh, I was more Superman than Batman for the most part, although I, I was pretty equal opportunity um, and tended to be a little more DC than Marvel early on. Uh, but, you know, over the years, it's sort of gone back and forth. What era of comics did you do you find that now as an adult, then as a kid, that, that you enjoyed the most? Um, well, you know, they, they say the golden age of science fiction is age 12, you know. Um, and so, you know, I think that's kind of true of comics, too. I, I, have, I have very, very fond recollections of all the comics that I read, first read as a kid. Um, and I loved that era a lot. Um, uh, the, um, the, you know, the post-crisis era of DC was a little fraught in some regards, you know, although there were a lot of good comics, uh, that I enjoyed, um, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a bit like, um, high fidelity, is it high fidelity, um, where, um, you know, the, there's, there's a line about, the guy's record collection where they're, you know, saying is this, uh, you know, collection, or, or, you know, arranged alphabetically or chronologically. And he says autobiographically, <laughs> you know, and that's mm -hmm. kind of how I feel about my comics. 
you know, they, you know, the ones I liked really, you know, reflected where I was at that time of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tend to be kind of a, a, a fairly, you know, um, positive comics fan. I'm, I'm, you know, very, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, what a lot of people refer to as sort of the retro style in comics. Um, you know, things that harken back to the sort of silver and bronze ages, um, because the tail end of the bronze age was pretty much when I started reading. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, although I enjoyed some of the more deconstructionist comics, um, at the time, um, and I appreciate them for what they are, you know, my, my real love is, is superheroes who are heroic and, you know, good superhero stories where the, the heroes, you know, save people and, you know, uh, overcome the bad guys and that kind of thing. And then uh, the last question about comics here. I I asked a bunch because I'm a, also a huge comic fan. Mm. But uh, who are your favorite writers and artists? Oh, gosh. Um, so off the top of my head, and this is going to be an incredibly incomplete list, um, uh, I, I love a lot of uh, Kurt Busiek's stuff. Um, uh, Astro City is still just absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I um, really like um, Phil Jimenez's um, both writing and art. Um, I just got uh, an omnibus edition of his Wonder Woman stuff, which is just so good. Um, and um, I was a big fan of Mark Gruenwald uh, back in the day, um, and it's his birthday just recently. Um, I was just reminded of that because I saw an article uh, about him. I liked a lot of his Marvel stuff and gosh, who else? Um, Mark Wade's stuff is great. Um, I'm, uh, um, artists. Uh, I mean, I, Perez is probably one of the greatest comic book artists in my pantheon. Um, just because his stuff was so just, it's just stood out so amazingly. Um, back when I was first reading comics. Um, but um, I, I really like um, Ivan Reyes's style. Um, and um, he, him on a book will almost certainly get me to at least take a look at it, mm-hmm. um, just because I really like his particular art style. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the greats, you know, as far as that. I mean, I loved, you know, uh, John Buscema and... Um, um, you know, uh, I mean, Kirby, obviously. Um, and, you know, gosh, like I said, there's so many, it would, it would be, you know, I would have to, you know, put together a lengthy list, mm-hmm. you know, um, big fan of Grant Morrison. Um, when he's, when he's, he hits the right spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's not it. You know, it can be a little hit or miss with me, but when he's on, he's, he's on. Yes, yeah, sometimes Grant Morrison is a little too Grant Morrison, but like yeah. I said, when when he's on, he's on. Yeah. So, moving back into the realm of RPGs, what is your design philosophy when when you're designing an adventure or an RPG system? Well, it depends somewhat on the nature of the project, but the I mean the overriding design philosophy is that these are games and they should be fun. And I know that that sounds 
you know, kind of obvious, but um, there there is definitely uh, a tendency, uh, and I I fall victim to it as much as anyone um, to treat design as kind of an exercise unto itself, um, you know, and um, you know that's that can be you know kind of fun in its own right. But it doesn't necessarily produce the best product, you know, as far as a, a fun game. Um, you know, uh, game designers often tend to get a little obsessed with minutia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes that, that isn't the, the very best way to approach something. Um, so uh, I try to um, I try to adopt a somewhat more minimalist approach than I used to um, because I feel like um, a lot of the uh, added chrome in uh, design is a bit wasted sometimes. Yeah, there there does tend to be amongst uh, some RPG designers kind of an arms race of complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think a lot of people sometimes lose track of these are games they should be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I think that, you know, sometimes we, we, we one of the, 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 the good points about RPGs particularly is that there's a certain element of the unknown to them. The, the most fun element of RPGs for me is the, the unexpected um, you know, when the, the rubber meets the road and the players actually get to play the adventure, you have no idea how it's going to come out. And the most interesting things are almost always the ones that emerge out of the course of playing um, and are rarely preplanned. Um, sometimes a really good preplanned thing comes off well, but usually it's the unexpected things that are the most interesting. And it can be tempting a lot of times to see that blank space that we leave for the unexpected as a flaw and to try and fill it in um, with and cover every possibility. You know, it's like you said, there's, there's sort of a, you know, an arms race of complexity of, you know, this, this game has to anticipate every eventuality uh, and that's just a, a losing proposition because you're never going to be able to do that. And you're just going to get to the point where the, the game is so bogged down with special case rules that are never going, are either never going to come up or the one time out of 10,000 that it does come up, it's going to bring your game to a grinding halt while everybody looks that obscure rule up to figure out what it is because no one's ever used it (laughs) and they're going to learn it so they can implement it once and then never use it again. So, you know, a lot of that is comes down to kind of wasted time as far as that goes. Now, where did the idea for mutants and masterminds start for you? Uh, It started with my desire to, get a, a setting and that I had written published. Mm-hmm. Um, I designed what 
was what would become uh, the Freedom City setting as a freelance project. And the uh, publishing agreement um, for it fell through. And so I had this, you know, initial sort of superhero setting um, that I, you know, couldn't publish. Um, and I kind of tinkered with it as sort of a hobby project for a while um, because now I was also free from any of the original constraints of the, you know, the original project parameters. So, um, I had this sort of seed for a, a, a setting, um, the freedom of the city itself. And so I just kept kind of, you know, tinkering with it and adding to it and, um, you know, exploring little nooks and crannies of it and being like, Oh, what if I had something here? And, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And so it kept kind of growing and growing. And, um, I, I was lamenting to, uh, Chris Premis, the president of Green Ronin, um, at the time, um, that I had this, you know, superhero setting and, you know, didn't know what I was going to do with it because there weren't any, uh, at that particular time, any active superhero games, uh, that were in print that were looking for a setting, um, and um, this was at the you know the very early years of the the D twenty open license boom. Um, Green Renin was one of the many companies that got its start um, from that. Uh, and Chris said, "Well, I'll tell you what, you know, let me take a look at the setting." Um, and he did, and he's like, "Yeah, it's really cool. Um, um, what, I'll tell you what we can do if you want to take the." Um, open license the, the system resource document and design a superhero game, you know, based on the D20 system, we'll do, a, we'll cut you a two book deal. We'll do a rule book and we'll do a setting book and we'll publish your setting. And I was like, all right, that sounds good. Um, and so um, I sat down with the system resource document and was like, what have I just gotten myself into? <laughs> I really want to get my setting published, but do I really? Can I really make a superhero game out of this? And so I, I took it all apart and uh, looked at different ways I could I could make things work in that regard, and came up with a few proposals and uh, ran them by Chris because I was like, so I want to do a couple of different things, and he was like, okay, you know, why not? Um, and so you know, I did things like taking out hit points and um, putting in, in damage saving throws and, you know, um, coming up with a whole different point-based character building system uh, that definitely showed my college years of playing champions. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, built, a, built a system out of it. And, uh, um, you know, uh, now it's, you know, in its, you know, third edition and you know uh it's still going so i guess i guess it came out okay so i mean what did you think of the d20 boom as it was happening uh, it was kind of crazy really at the time um it was it was really sort of wild westish um in the it, it was it was very different from the RPG publishing industry that I had known and freelanced in for the whatever it was about six or seven years before that um, I was very used to the notion that um, you had a game system 
and that it was, you know, obviously tethered to a publisher who owned it. And oftentimes that game system was tethered to a particular setting or settings that went with it. And that was pretty much that, you know, I mean, you had a few, you know, games like GURPS and Hero System that, you know, um, were looking to be universal game systems in one form or another. But even then, you know, if you wanted to do a Hero System product, you went to Hero Games and pitched it to them. Um, You know, people weren't just running off and doing their own, you know, Hero System products. And so the open game license, you know, really changed all of that uh, because all of a sudden, um, people, publishers could tap into what was, you know, basically the biggest market um, for for game products, which was the the D and D market, um, and you know, um, and game designers could really, you know, uh, take you know take things, take the game apart and remix it, and so you saw a whole lot of experimentation uh, at that time. You know, everybody was was doing their own thing. And so you saw just a tremendous amount of, um, you know, uh, new ideas of, you know, people would, you know, uh, create new subsystems or new ways of using the D20 system or whole new settings. You know, there was a lot of innovation. Um, and, you know, some of it was, was really clever and really, um, you know, influenced, I think, later editions of the, of the game. And, some of it, you know, didn't, you know, land so well, you know, but that's to be expected when you're, you're seeing a lot of experimentation. Um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, and, you know, it, you know, literally created a whole new generation of, of publishing companies mm. uh, as far as that went as well. Yeah, for, I mean, for people like me who started gaming in 2014, I, I've gone back and, and done a lot of research on gaming mm-hmm. eras past yeah um another world yeah the d20 boom was odd in that it seemed like just about anything could get an rpg yes yeah that was true i mean literally any crazy idea you know mm-hmm. you could you could build a people would build a game out of it even and and this one came out of uh your company green ronin testaments role-playing in the biblical era yep <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was part of the whole sort of historical line of um, D and D supplements that Green Ronin did, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and Testament was really a, a really well researched book too. It was one of the things that I really liked about Mutants and Masterminds the the times that I played it is the way that not only the characters but the the way that sessions of the game are constructed are basically around the way that issues of comic books are constructed. How important mm. was it to capture that in, in designing the game? Oh, pretty important. You know, that was, that was the, the sort of main arc that I wanted the, the game to encompass um, was, um, and this, this was part of how, how the game developed um, was, um, Initially, uh, Mutants and Masterminds started out um, with um, characters getting hero points as, you know, essentially sort of a, a fixed pool. You know, they started with, I think it was 10 hero points, you know, at the start of the game. 
and the notion was that you you know you spent them until you ran out of them and you know then good luck to you um sort of a thing but as i ran more of the game um i discovered that the 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 narrative structure um that was closer to the way the comics worked was the reverse approach that we ended up taking in the second edition um, going forward, which was that characters um, basically started out with very few hero points. um, And as they encountered and overcame obstacles, um, they gained more and more of them because the, the narrative arc of the comic book story is that the heroes start out from sort of a, a baseline, um, things get worse and worse and worse for them um, as they face these, you know, ongoing challenges. You know, oftentimes they'll they'll have an initial defeat or setback. They'll have all of their personal issues come up. Um, they'll you know run into a you know a cliffhanger death trap or some other you know really dramatic moment, and then. In the third act, they'll turn it all around and manage to somehow snatch, you know, victory from the jaws of defeat. And mm-hmm. um, having the characters ramp up the amount of hero points they got over the course of the game led to them ending the game with more hero points than they started with so that they could, you know, spend them all on that sort of last dramatic scene, uh, especially when it was set up so that the hero points didn't carry over uh, into the next game. It was a use them or lose them proposition um, because I, I did have players who would hoard, you know, like resources uh, of that sort. Um, and uh, when in fact they were meant to use them. So, you know, it was partly set up out of, you know, a play test experience where I was like, no, you have to spend them. That's why I gave them to you. Uh <laughs> And so that that structure actually you know worked much better in terms of being more like a, a typical comic book arc. And Mutants and Masterminds was also adapted into the DC Adventures role playing game. Yes. What was the most fun part of adapting Mutants and Masterminds for the DC universe? Um, standing up the Justice League. <laughs> um, that's that was the first um, when we when we got. Um, the when we were initially in negotiations with DC for the license, uh, which were long because you know DC is a you know huge you know uh, a huge subsidiary of a huge you know conglomerate. Um, uh, I was doing a lot of um, proof of concept work essentially um, that was intended to show you know basically how you know how things would look. Um, and so one of the first things I, I wor- started working on was basically doing mutants and mastermind stats for the, for the justice league characters, um, because they were obviously DC's flagship characters and DC was going to want to see how they were, how they were treated. Um, and, um, I was, I was really happy with, um, you know, how it all came together because I, you know, it, uh, you know, it was, it was not all that difficult, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it was, it was kind of a fun, you know, uh, project to be able to do. And, uh, you know, I mean that any superhero game, you know, that's, that's 
intended to you know be a comic book superhero game obviously he's got to be capable of doing you know superman and batman anyway um or it's not much of a superhero game to begin with um so um it wasn't so much whether i could do it it was more just how i was going to do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it was a fun exercise um so i i enjoyed a lot of that um and um the that and um because part of our licensing deal was um access to dc's art archive um in fact that was part of the deal was in fact we had to use dc's art um we weren't allowed to commission art um but you know but dc was like yeah you can have anything in our archive (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. to illustrate the book so it was probably the most fun I ever had putting together an art order uh, for a product mm-hmm. uh, because it was just like, you know, hunting down, you know, uh, going through my, literally going through my back issue boxes in some cases um, and like hunting down panels of particular comics and being like, I want to have this here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sort of a thing. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, for those of you who are huge DC fans, uh, these books are actually pretty hard to get a hold of these days since they're out of print. Mm -hmm. But if you get the chance, uh, in my opinion, the the most fascinating books are the the character compendiums, the the two books that y'all did. The Heroes and Villains books. Yeah, the Heroes and Villains books, because those are comprehensive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my, you guys didn't miss anyone. (laughs) We tried to squeeze as much as we possibly could in there. Uh, and we, mm-hmm. we laid some fairly tight constraints on the, the writers uh, of those books, too, um, because gods love them, you know. I mean, and I, I totally get it. Um, you know, everybody, you know, who was working on it was a giant comic book nerd um, and uh, would, you know, go on at length about a car- particular character's history and we'd be just like no (laughs) like you've got 500 words like summarize there's a lot here about nightshade uh maybe about a quarter of that (laughs) yeah right exactly we're just like condense (laughs) you know um so but yeah they we we put together um john lighthouser and i uh john was the the developer on uh, dc adventures um, we we sat down basically and put together this big master spreadsheet essentially of all of the all the characters who were going to go in the in the heroes and villains books mm-hmm. um, and you know how you know basically how much space each character was going to get allocated and um, all of that uh, and um, yeah it was it was pretty comprehensive when it was all said and done. Now w- was there any part of doing that adaptation that was challenging well (laughs) yes uh the the most challenging thing was um that when we had finished the core rule book and we were starting work on the heroes and villains volumes dc announced that they were doing the new 52 and that they were completely relaunching their entire universe uh and we were like Oh, okay. Because we found out about the same way everybody else did, which is on the mm-hmm. internet. Um, and so and so we got in touch with, 
you know, our um, licensing liaison, you know, and with DC and, and they were pretty, and they pretty much shrugged like, <laughs> I don't know, like, what are you going to do? Um, you know, and so we were just like, oh, well, we're kind of committed now, um, you know, because of course the other thing was, you know, we were like, can we like retool this? Does DC <laughs> want us to retool this? You know, um, you know, sort of a thing. And it pretty much came down to, you know, that, you know, DC was focused. They were like, we're doing a giant relaunch. We, you know, can't be bothered right now. Um, <laughs> you know, and so we're just like, okay, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And so, um, ironically, uh, by the time the Heroes and Villains books came out, um, huge swaths of the material in them was wrong, um, according to the, the, the then present DC continuity, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, DC had obviously, you know, completely, you know, blown up and, you know, rebuilt their, their whole comics line. Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, um, DC adventures was kind of the last, um, snapshot of, um, the pre new 52 DC universe, uh, at that time, a large gotcha. portion of which is now basically back in place, but that's how those things go. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about icons. Sure. So, where that came from? uh, Icons, like a lot of things, um, came from the fact that I tinker a lot, like I think a lot of game designers do. Um, And um, I had been, I started out toying with the notion of. Basically, uh, the the old Marvel superheroes game um, had its you know sort of named abilities you know so everything was you know monstrous or amazing or unearthly or what have you. Um, and by the way, uh, Marvel superheroes Jeff Grubb's design on that is one of the greatest game designs ever, and people should study it. Um, but um, I had been toying with that and with um, Stephen O'Sullivan's um, fudge system uh, now long since eclipsed by eclipsed by its far more famous offspring fate and um stefan's uh system also used you know basically named um ability ranks um rather than focusing on numerical abilities um and i liked the notion of of sort of named descriptive ranks um as being kind of accessible um you know, it certainly makes a lot more sense to, you know, tell a novice that, you know, they're a, a you know, a great martial artist rather than you have martial arts seven, you know, on a scale of what, you know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was playing around with, you know, sort of marrying elements of, of those kind of systems. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, playing around with it from a superhero system perspective, cause that's one of my things. Um, and I was also um, then thinking about um, random character generation um, because um, a lot of my early experience with um, superhero systems was with um, games like um, the original Marvel superheroes or villains and vigilantes um, that were games that did have random or uh, for that matter, Gamma World, you know, where you were rolling up your random mutations um, and I just loved that. Um, I would, I would, when I first got Gamma World, I just spent hours just rolling up random mutant characters, 
I, I think I had a box full of them um, that, you know, I wasn't doing anything with. I just wanted to roll up characters. And um, so I was, I was also intrigued with playing around with that, that notion. Um, and so uh, I, I was playing around with both aspects of that, and, and they kind of came together to form the, the, the core of what would become icons. Uh, and then um, uh, Gareth Skarka uh, from Adamant Entertainment, you know, happened to, to mention that he was looking to do a, um, a you know, basically a superhero game um, that he essentially described what I was designing. Um, and I was like, huh, it's funny you mention that because I, I'm putting together, I'm building a game like that. Um, and so we talked and he was interested in publishing it. So, um, we, you know, came to an agreement and I, you know, and there's nothing like a deadline to get you moving on a project. Um, so, you know, the, the, my just sort of hobby tinkering on icons became a, you know, an actual, I'm going to get this done, um, process. Um, and I did and, um, Gareth put it out and we did some supplementary material, but, um, adamant, um, had pr scheduling problems and, you know, Gareth, like a lot of, you know, companies, Gareth is, was a one man show. Um, and so, um, he had other priorities. So it, it became apparent after a while, um, that, you know, uh, icons wasn't, you know, going to, you know, be a, a priority for adamant. And I completely understood that. So, I was, you know, I, I had a clause in my contract uh, to, you know, basically take, you know, take ownership of the game back, um, which I did. And um, I did a, um, a refurbished rec called the Assembled Edition. Actually, I technically I kickstarted the Great Power book first because I had already written that. Um, and then I ended up doing um, Assembled Edition. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I started my own uh, imprint at Infinitum Adventures to do basically just to do icons, but you know I can ha I have it if I want to do other things at some point. So um, and uh, icons has been you know sort of a, a fun uh, side project uh, for me in a lot of regards. Uh, it 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 definitely captures um, a lot of uh, the elements I like about being a, uh, a somewhat lighter, um, more fun, um, or not, not even more fun, just lighter, easier, simpler, um, game system that I'm, I'm doing my very, very best not to overcomplicate. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, I, I try very hard to, to make any of my supplemental, rules musings for icons as as light and modular and optional as i can so that i'm not overtaking the plumbing you know with a lot of complexity so is there a particular type of gamer that you would maybe recommend icons to over mutants and masterminds or even the reverse well um icons is designed for uh lowering the barriers to entry in a lot of ways uh, mm -hmm. in that you can sit down at the table with a book and roll up a character in 15 minutes uh, and be ready to play. Um, you know, uh, in some regards, uh, Mutants and Masterminds is a bit more of a gamer's game. Um, 
at least in as far as the character creation portion of it goes. Um, uh, Crystal Frazier, who's the uh, current Eminem developer at Green Renine, has been making great steps towards um, simplifying a lot of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I think you're gonna, you see you know a great first step in that regard with the um, beginner's guide, uh, the basic heroes handbook for mutants mm-hmm. and masterminds. Um, which actually does make it so that you can sit down with a Mutants and Masterminds book and also come up with a, a character in like 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, yeah, Eminem is a bit more of a gamer's game uh, in the sense that it's it's you know got a lot of moving parts. Um, and for people who are kind of design-minded, um, that's fun, you know, because, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I, you know, I still think it's fun designing characters. Um, but a lot of people are not big fans of that. And, you know, just more play, um, you know. And so uh, Icons is definitely designed to be a little bit more, uh, a little easier to get into, um, a little more fast playing. Um, and uh, Icons is a little bit more, honestly, a little more goofy in Silver Age and, you know, um, a little more, you know, not that both games aren't kid friendly, but I, I think that it would be easier to teach a kid to play Icons, Um as far as that goes. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a fun game for, you know, a gamer parents who want to play a superhero game with their kids kind of a thing. Uh, and, um, the, there's definitely a, a different appeal in the sense that, um, uh, icons has, um, randomness sort of built into its core. Um, and that, leads to a lot of interest. Like I said, it leads to a lot of interesting, unexpected things, which is one of my favorite things. Um, I like when I run demo games of icons or when I run icons at conventions, I like to have players make up characters at the table rather than giving them pregens. Um, because I think it, it shows off one of the aspects of the game, uh, both that they can make up a character quick, but also um, after they've, made all of their roles and they have this set of powers and abilities, then it's like, well, now come up with a superhero that explains all of this uh, and ties it all together. Uh, And people come up with the most wonderful, like off the wall ideas for characters. Um, And, and so many players are just like, I would have never in a million years come up with this character. If you had just sat me down cold with a piece of paper and said, here, make up a superhero. Um, but when I was given these, you know, parameters, sort of Iron Chef style, and said, you know, now you have to make a superhero out of this, you know, all of a sudden their imagination is engaged and people just come up with these amazing things. Yeah. So I, I really like that uh, about the experience. Now, earlier you mentioned Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and this has been kind of a common theme, not just amongst the creators that i've had on the show but amongst a lot of my guests actually there's a lot of people in the rpg world using kickstarter now Mm -hmm. Uh, how have you utilized it in your career uh i ran one kickstarter for the great power book because i needed an art budget gotcha (laughs) basically um because you know uh it was a, a it was a decent outlet initial outlay 
um, you know, to to make that happen. And I also needed to pay a, a graphic designer to lay out the book. Um, and so um, I, I did Kickstarter because I, I didn't have the upfront money to put into a, a book like that uh, that I was going to publish on my own. Um, so I did, uh, and it got me the money I needed, and I did the book. Uh, and quite honestly, I'm not overly inclined to ever do another Kickstarter again. Gotcha. Uh, and haven't so far, but mm-hmm. time will tell. And that actually leads very nicely into the next question because, I mean, there's good and bad with everything, but mm-hmm. what do you think about what Kickstarter has kind of done to the RPG world? Well, it certainly has changed the landscape uh, in a number of ways. Um <sighs> Kickstarter is, you know, another one of those game changers, no pun intended, that, um, you know, has opened up a lot of opportunities. Uh, I think there are a ton of really great game products out there um, that wouldn't exist uh, without Kickstarter. um, Because, again, you know, most game designers are not coming into this with, you know, a big chunk of capital to you know, produce a product. Uh, and there are a lot of upfront costs as far as that goes. Um, so on that level, I think that that's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that Kickstarter has, has really opened up a tremendous opportunity, you know, for publishing, um, especially for small companies and for independent designers, uh, so far as that goes. Um, I do think it's changed the dynamic in some ways uh, as far as uh, the relationship of the the audience to publishers and their products. Um, I think that while I think fans were always invested in their favorite games, but now they're much more literally <laughs> invested uh, as far as that goes. Uh, and now you're you're seeing a lot more, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, stakeholder, you know, level, you know, I mean, everybody's, you know, when you run a Kickstarter, everybody owns a piece of it, mm-hmm. you know, as far as that goes. Um, and, um, that, that really affects how you, you know, how you deal with people and how you interact with people and what their, you know, level of investment in your, your work is, um, and it's, you know, uh, while Kickstarter is a great resource, it, uh, at the same time, it's a lot of work running a Kickstarter, mm-hmm. uh, especially, uh, you know, the more, the more successful a Kickstarter is and the more backers it has, the more work it becomes. Uh, and I know plenty of publishers, you know, who have, you know, basically a full-time staff person to handle just to manage Kickstarter, uh, you know, and to handle all of the, you know, amount of communication that that requires uh, as far as it goes. Because it is, it's a, it's a ton of interaction, you know, with updates and comments and questions and messages and uh, everything that goes into that. So um, I think that it has, it has definitely had some, some interesting effects on, on things, and I think that it's going to continue to um, as different publishers continue to use Kickstarter in different ways. Um, 
you know, and there, and there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the, the quote unquote intended way, you know, of using Kickstarter as if, you know, uh, you know, as I think it was William Gibson who said the street finds its own uses for things, mm-hmm. um, you know, as if, you know, the, these other uses, you know, that emerged, you know, aren't, you know, valid in some way. Um, you know, cause, cause different, different publishers approach Kickstarter as a different thing, you know, for some, it's the opportunity to get the, the, the operating capital they need in order to produce a product, you know, for some, it's an opportunity to build an audience or a brand. Um, for some, it's an opportunity to, you know, uh, engage, you know, a, a vigorous sort of pre-order system um, to do a lot of initial direct sales to their fan base. Um, you know, so, I mean, and the, the, you know, everybody uses Kickstarter for all that and more. So, Steve, you are, you're still working at Green Ronin, correct? I am. Uh, gotcha. I am, uh, my, I think my official title insofar as we have them uh, these days is staff designer, um, which basically just means I write stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what is coming out of Green Ronin next that that you are involved with? Uh, let's see. The very next things, uh, the most recent thing was um, the Expanse RPG, which I did lead design on. Gotcha. Um, and that's out, um, in fact, again, via Kickstarter. Um, shipping to backers uh, has made its way into distribution uh, I believe is showing up in stores. Um, so, um, that's out there. Um, I, uh, we just, Green Running just released the, um, Modern Age Companion, uh, for the, um, Modern Age RPG, the adventure game engine, um, system that was used in, uh, Dragon Age, Fantasy Age, um, Blue Rose, The Expanse, uh, number of Green Renin's recent projects. Um, the companion book just came out at um, Origins this past weekend and is also, again, shipping into distribution, pre-orders and the like. And I, I wrote some uh, material for that as well. And gotcha. I've got a, um, some stuff in a upcoming Mutants and Masterminds uh, book as well. And then uh, is there anything coming up from Ad Infinitum anything that you're uh, you're putting out independently mm-hmm. that you'd like to talk about uh yeah in fact uh just uh yesterday i uh released a, a new uh villains book called rogues uh for icons uh it's out in um pdf and print on demand on drive through and uh it's a um a collection of uh, villains, uh, adversaries, uh, and the like, uh, similar, in fact, to the adversaries source book, uh, that preceded it. Um, rogues is a little different, um, in that, uh, it has a few more, um, sort of experimental characters, um, and touches on, uh, a few more, uh, sort of broader aspects of the, the comic book spectrum. There are a few more cosmic level characters, uh, in there, um, and a few, um, sort of more, a few weirder ones, honestly, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, that, you know, hit on a few different, you know, vibes, uh, and play around with some ideas. And, um, 
there's a uh, a random um, uh, themed gang generator in the in the back of it. Um, nice. So if you want to roll up a, a random you know gang of of villains that you know has you know whatever you know circus acts or you know zoo animals as their motif, um, you can you can throw that together uh, in in a few uh, die rolls. Uh, um, for that sort of thing, because I, you know, because again, I just love, you know, comic book, weird comic book things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's brand new, um, and I've got another uh, collection of um, basically just sort of game system or genre essays uh, for icons that I've been uh, working on on and off for a while. That's my next icons project to try and wrap up as far as that goes. Um, and, um, that's, you know, the, the thing I would say about icons is, you know, stuff is, stuff's done when it's done. <laughs> you know, people ask, mm-hmm. ask me about release dates and I'm like, I don't have to send anything to distributors. So, you know, it releases when I hit send, you know, mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Yep. Well, Steve, is there anything else you'd like to promote? Uh, you got a, a live microphone in front of you, so just uh, you know, tell people your social media, all that stuff. Sure. Um, so I have a website at uh, stevekenson.com, um, and I, I blog very infrequently these days. Um, but uh, I do try to announce you know, new things uh, that, are, that are coming out uh, and the like, uh, convention appearances, those kinds of things. Um, and you know, all my like blog archives for anybody who wants to, you know, uh, listen to me go on about superheroes. Um, and I'm on, uh, Twitter at S Kenson, uh, K E N S O N. Uh, it's probably the social media I'm most active on. Um, also on Facebook and have an author page under my name, uh, at infinitum also has a Facebook page, uh, and a, a Twitter account, um, for folks who want to follow those. And uh, I think that's pretty much it as far as the, the main social media um, to, to follow me on, especially for talking gaming stuff. Well, Steve, once again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. And uh, just, again, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for this week. Um, Coming up next week, we've got something very cool. We have uh, Jackie Zantow, who founded Crawler, the uh, tender of RPG groups. So it'll be very cool to talk to her. And uh, as always, ladies and gentlemen, just remember, it's always fun to save the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on Anchor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to shout at me on social media, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And if you like miniatures and miniature painting, you can see all the work that I do on my Instagram, which is at Fenderboy771. Our theme song for Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is Rumblin' by Trey Van Zant, who you can find at youtube.com slash C slash Trey Van Zant, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Thank you so very much, and have a great day.